Hi, welcome to the Spotlight Report. I'm your host, Logan Graves. This is a monthly podcast where we dive into topics that pique our interest. They typically cover optics and science, but honestly, they can be quite broad. You can find out more about the Spotlight Report and find all of our episodes, as well as comment or like the podcast, on our new location, which is on the ELE Optics Community Forum. That location is community.eleoptics.com, and you'll find the Spotlight Report there. Thanks for listening. So this week on the Spotlight Report, we are sitting down with Dr. Patrick Hager, who got his PhD in uh, polymer material sciences. And the key word there is materials that will apply strongly to uh, the topic today, which is his um, work at 3M Material Company on adhesives, R&D, and other things. So with that being said, Pat, can you tell us uh, a little bit about, well, actually, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your doctorate was in, really, and how that applies more broadly? Okay. So um, thanks for inviting me, Logan. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I had uh, gotten a degree in um, chemistry, an undergraduate degree, and trying to find what was applicable at that point in time. Um, polymer science is a really hot field, and you know people will be familiar with things like polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene. Uh, it's the synthesis of polymers on the one end and understanding and, and application of technology development on the other end. So my thesis work involved uh, stress crystallization of polybutadiene. So to make a long story, a long mouthful short, basically when you stretch certain rubbery materials, they tend to spontaneously undergo crystallization. And that has a big impact on you know real world use. The number one use that most of us are familiar with is a related similar polymer, uh, polyisoprene is actually natural rubber. Um, comes from the Havea brasiliensis tree, South Asia, and it undergoes strain crystallization readily right around room temperature. And why that's important is because applied stress can form crystallization in these materials, which is a way for them to kind of suck up or take the stress and to dissipate it in the, in the formation of the crystals. Then the crystals melt and the cycle goes on forever and ever because nature's enzymatic and makes it beautifully. So I did a similar study on an analog, simpler to understand polymer. Okay, perfect. And you completed that work, and then you went on to the company 3M. Mm -hmm. uh, and for our listeners who aren't familiar, you probably actually are familiar. 3M makes adhesives, um, think tape, yeah, post-it notes, uh, post-it note, uh, scotch tape, uh, etc. But but it, I mean, that's only scratching the surface, so to speak. Uh, adhesives are used, uh, not only adhesives, but also fil uh, films are used in so many varieties uh, of science and so many applications. So can you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself at 3M? So 3M, um, you know, it's uh, headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a 117 or 18-year-old company. It started out as a sandpaper company. And uh, early on, realized that it could link customers and understanding customers to new applications, which led to new products and growth. So uh, from Sandpaper, they've built out to, I think they have anywhere between 50 and 60,000 products that they sell every year. 
They sell in all major uh, segments of the market just about, including optical materials, a lot of stuff in healthcare, a lot of stuff in industrial and automotive, and uh, consumer uh, retail types of things. So scotch tape was, dis- was uh, invented in 1925 and by 3M. And uh, it incorporates many of the aspects that, Logan, you're just talking about, which is to say thin film, thin film technology, and adhesives. And I, I really like that, that idea because uh, a lot of our listeners might be from the optics realm and they think thin films, that's a coating on my optic for anti-reflective. Uh, and that's a very limited definition of what constitutes films. Um, so 3M is an exciting company. We, in some of my courses, uh, in my, in some of the stuff I've read, they are famous for how innovative they've been over their hundred plus years. Um, and I think that bridges nicely into what your role was at 3M. Right. So I was a, um, I was a product developer. I was offered the opportunity to be in their basic research laboratory. And I lasted about a year in there because it was just like graduate <laughs> school. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to make something more. You know, I'm grateful those guys are there because they have a deeper understanding. But there's a lot of things to apply and learn. So I uh, ended up with a series of, uh, you know, innovations for different areas um, from retail to automotive and industrial and a little healthcare even. Um, if you think about 3M and, and a lot of the work that I did involves a simple concept of a roll of adhesive tape, which is seems prosaic and seems you know kind of low tech, but actually it's a very high tech material and product. And so it incorporates thin film processing technology, understanding of that, uh, how do you coat and convert and apply and package and all those sorts of things. So you get a real education on how a manufacturing operation works and. So, I mean, even before we get into depth on it, what is your definition of a thin film, a quote-unquote thin film? Well, my definition of a thin film is probably different from yours. Um, I will say as a caveat that 3M also has been integral in uh, making optical film products, uh, brightness enhancement enhancement films and the like. Uh, Pretty much every iPhone or cell phone has some 3M brightness film or light modification film in them. Um, and those films can be, you know, nanometers thick. The film regime I worked in was uh, much more in the lines of, um, of the microns, mm-hmm. the dozens of microns. So typically 15 to 35 micron thickness range. So it's quite a bit thicker than optical, but this is because it had to have a structural capability as a backing film or some other substrate. Uh, and then typically when we are applying films, we want them to stay applied, right? Yes, so I have to imagine that uh, the adhesive component is a key component as well. Absolutely. Uh, can you give just a little bit of background of what types of scenarios people want things to adhere? Well, um, let's just take a simple piece of scotch tape. So scotch tape, let's say that you've torn your term paper and you're actually using paper rather than electronic. Imagine the day. Uh, and you want to do a repair. So what, what you want is you want to have something that's uh, sticky on at least one side. Some of them are sticky on both sides. And that's an engineering trick to pull that off. Um, and you want it to come in a format or the form factor of a roll because you can get the most bang for your buck. You can get, you know, hundreds of feet in, a, in a, something you can shove in your pocket. 
So there's a whole science and technology on how do you make the adhesive stay on the one surface and not transfer to the other? How do you make it stay on the, on the surface you want it to stick to? Because some adhesives stick very well to only a certain regime. Some adhesives stick very well to everything. So, you know, you have to pick your surface, your opportunity, and, and what you're trying to achieve. Right. And that's, um, I, don't, I, do, I really like that, that, you know, behind something that we use so casually, there's a lot of engineering and science that goes into it. Um, so what were some of the key uh, research and engineering and science challenges associated with uh, your work at 3M? Well, one of the things that I was trying to do is to, I was trying to utilize or incorporate um, essentially lower cost materials and have them function very well in the kind of customers that we needed to have. And this could be anything from an automotive body repair shop to, you know, a, a retail store like a Target. Um, so the, the adhesives that we had to have were typically acrylic based. And I won't go into too much detail, but these are polar uh, materials. So they tend to stick to um, polar surfaces like paper, paint, and things like that very well, but not so well to, to plastics like polyethylene or polypropylene. For that, you use a different kind of adhesive, rubber-based or silicone adhesive. So there's a whole families of adhesives based on the underlying polymer chemistry. And I've kind of lost the point of the question, so take me back to what, you, what you're uh, looking for. Well, I asked, I think, unfairly, a, a grossly broad question, which is, what was what was hard about what you did? Oh, okay. All right, <laughs> so, what was hard for, hard. so what was hard for what I did is imagine bridging the gap. We have an interface that's, uh, now we're talking submicrons, you know, hundreds of nanometers thick or less, where on the one surface you have a very... Um, low surface energy or hydrophobic material like a polypropylene. Um, and when I say hydrophobic, I mean imagine having a sheet of this stuff and putting a drop of water on it. The water will beat up mm -hmm. on that kind of material. And then on the other surface that the adhesive is going to stick to, um, it might be a very polar surface. So now you're bridging this incredible surface tension gap. And how do you do that? Well, the first thing is you have to have your adhesive adhere to the substrate surface, um, or the backing surface, I should say, I'll correct myself, in this case, meaning the polypropylene film. Imagine that somehow you have a, a length or a sheet of polypropylene film, it's got a very low surface energy, you've got a pretty high surface energy acrylic adhesive, how do you get them to stick? Well, one of my, my good friends and my one of my longest term collaborators at 3M was instrumental in developing the art and science of uh, surface treatment, high-speed processing. He was a, a real guru in uh, corona treatment. And corona is nothing more than an arc discharge. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is imagine having an electrode being a grounded uh, metal roll, and you pass a film over that roll surface at a very high speed. And on the other surface is an electrode, uh, like a ribbon electrode, and you discharge, create an arc across that. And the gap could be millimeters. And uh, by virtue of that and controlling the atmospherics, you can get a particular precise kind of surface treatment. Now, the adhesive will bond like grim death to that formerly hydrophobic low surface energy surface because you've at least temporarily converted into a very high energy surface. And once that adhesive is on that surface, it's now passivated and it's happy and it bonds together. It has to bond strong enough that Imagine now you've stuck the adhesive to something else and you've left it there for, I don't know, four years. And you decide, i got to move out of my dorm. It's time to peel this off. Now you want it to, to come off the wall, but you also want it to come off of the adhesive backing. 
which is a prelude to one of the other developments, another development I'd worked on, which is a releasable adhesive from wall surfaces. So you had to have the, the bond to the backing film so strong that it would prefer to stay there and not transfer to the wall surface or the other surface. Because you don't want to take a piece of the wall when you uh, and nor do you want to leave a glob of adhesive sticking right. there on the surface that you know is is no good. Right. Um, so. so there's one thing that you've said that keeps coming up, uh, and this is exciting for me because I, I got to recently experience it in in the full power. Um, that I think a lot of our listeners are graduate students or even possibly younger students, they don't think about which is high speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It matters when you are in a business scenario and 3M is a very large corporation, how quick you can get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that consideration and how it might differ from not, you know, from like a, a graduate lab or research lab, sure. for example? So in graduate school, if I wanted to make a coating, I would use something like a Meyer rod or a bar coating or a little die slot. And I would coat at, you know, basically how fast I could move my arms. So I'm talking about feet per, you know, feet per second or feet per minute even. So, you know, this is, you know, it's a reasonable human rate. Now, you're not going to make any money running a plant at that operation. So just to give you a sense of scale, if you're making a film backing, there's two disparate things. There's the making of a film, for example, and then there's a coating or converting of that film. We call it converting. And so... Those processes at a large scale, the filmmaking side has to be done on the meters width. Eight to ten meters is not uncommon. And hundreds of meters per minute speeds, down web speeds, that is in the direction that you're moving. And so that's quite a bit faster. Now the coding can go even faster than that. And there has to be special science and technology applied to allow that coding to come out you know, with the uniformity that it does, with the precision that it does, and reproducibility and it has to run. 24-7, you know, all day, every day, every year. And uh, and they do that. And it's it's a remarkable size, scale, and speed difference. So the three S's. I always think about uh, that. Sh- I, it might still be running, but the show, How It's Made. Mm-hmm. And they would go into factories and you'd see them, you know, going through the machines. And you think about it casually like, well, it probably is just for gross, uh, gross mechanics or parts. It's not precision. Um but it is. I mean, in the case of 3M, in the case of these films and adhesives, it's ultra precision uh, and ultra repeatable all the time, like you're saying. Correct. Yeah. And you have to have, you know, American industry, for better or worse, went through a phase of Six Sigma right. uh, measurement methodology. And, you know, it, it's, it's ill used on one end, but on a manufacturing standpoint, it's actually a very good system, a good tool, because it it's intended to drive out errors, which is to say drive up uniformity. Right. And if you can be assured that 98% or 97% of your product is converted, your yields go up and your profit goes up. I mean, it's good for everybody. Right. And I, I think it's uh, it's interesting how different your mentality or your focus has to be when that's one of the key considerations. So from, from my work in the graduate <clears throat> lab, we did a lot of metrology on optics and especially large optics. And the life cycle for these things is multiple years. So you build the instrument, you make sure it will get you extremely precise answers um, at the limit of the technology, and it maybe has to do this one or possibly like five times. 
and you can spend years doing it and your advisor might get a little bit frustrated like well where are the results well you know it's coming it's graduate school so it's okay <coughs> uh, <laughs> right right of course but you get into a different scenario and it's it doesn't matter how much science you're throwing at it and how many innovations you're throwing at it it's does it work quickly and repeatedly um, we use the term I, I, that's a, a great summation of the difference and we use the term robust yeah you right. know, you, you actually will go simpler if at all possible, rather than more complex, if it gives you robustness. Right. It's not always the case. Sometimes going more complex will increase your the robustness of your manufacturing process. But really, every minute the machine is turned on is either costing you money or making you money. And you know, we do live in a capitalistic society, so you you know you, you want to err on the side of making money right. if at all possible. Right. <laughs> your boss will be happier if that's yeah, you'll be your shareholders, everybody <laughs> right. investors, your your capitalists, everybody's happy. Um so I think that that bridges into an interesting topic. Uh, again, paralleling the, the differences perhaps between graduate school and and the workforce. Um, at least in my experience, you're you have the potential to be a lot more isolated in graduate school. You can be told, "Go figure this out," you know, do whatever you need to do, and spin your wheels in lab. And you might not talk to people or work with people or collaborate. Um, much to your own detriment, in my opinion, but I think it's kind of the norm in graduate school. Whereas you have to collaborate, you have to be team-centric, hopefully, I think. You maybe don't have to, but it seems like that's beneficial in the in more of a corporate environment. Can you speak to that? Oh, that's, uh, Logan, that is such an important point. And it is, it's true. I, I actually had a professor and undergraduate who penalized us if he caught us, that is to say, you know, working with each other it's it was crazy that he was he was from a really old school type of background he thought that you know everybody had to do it independently or you won't learn i understand that but it's uh, you know you learn more actually in collaboration as soon as you get into industry you know the biggest transition most students make is you know they're used to having a you know they might have several good ideas and there's a natural ownership this is my baby this is my idea and the the, the number one thing I, I would tell people when I was mentoring them was you have to let go of ownership. It's not yours anymore. It belongs to the group or the company. And so learning how to be collaborative is, first of all, letting go of all your things. And you have to trust human nature. It sometimes is frustrating, but most often it works out well in the end. And you have to learn how to work in a team and understand that you need different strengths in the team. You don't need a bunch of, like, in your case, it would be fruitless to have seven identically trained optical scientists working on a problem. You need an engineer. You need a marketing person. You need a right. manufacturing person. You need somebody who knows what's practical, you know, maybe legal. You need all sorts of people. Right. And I think I think there's a risk coming from graduate school where you've been selected because you're a high achiever and you go through it and it reinforces the idea that you're an extremely high achiever. You know, mm-hmm. you did something totally novel on your own. Um so therefore, I can handle anything. And I, I think there's a podcast that I'll link to uh, from Planet Money. They just did an interesting discussion about the idea of comparative advantage. So it doesn't matter if you're better at something else than, than the other person. If you're best at one thing and the other person can do the other thing, let them do it. Because, right. you know, comparative advantage, that right. overall, like, the end goal gets right. achieved better or faster. So. Right, yeah. The team has to operate as a, as a single person almost and have a goal. And, you know, I spent time as a team leader. And one of the first things I realized was, you know, you have to balance 
the ego piece. You know, it's easy to say, well, leave your ego at the door, but, you know, I, it's, it's really what defines us as people. So what you have to do is manage your ego at the door. You right. Know? And understand what you do well and then do that thing. And hopefully, you know, a good leader will find the, the right fit. But it's, it's not perfect, but there's a high value placed on it. And in your role at 3M, you um, had the opportunity or had to, depending on your perspective, interface with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, how? Like, well, how, do, how do you do it? What's the recommendation? I, well, I didn't know any better than anybody else coming out of school. But, and I spent the first couple of years kind of spinning my wheels. And then I just started to ask for help. So it was really, I just mentioned ego. It's really hard sometimes for those of us who are driven or type A's or, you know, really high performing, want to do things, um, to say, I don't know. So you practice how to say, I don't know. And then you start to understand that making a product, let's say you're making a roll of tape, to use that example, you need to have a manufacturing engineer and you need to have two manufacturing engineers, one person to handle the filmmaking side and the other person to handle the converting side. You need to have supply chain people. Where does this stuff come from? How do you get it in there in the right quantity at the right price? And so what you start to, how you do it is try to think about how something is made and that the different component parts usually represent a specialty or a person. And so then you start to realize, oh, I need to find this person. And that's where you develop a network. So networking, I'm sure everybody's familiar with this. You're trying to find people and they're trying to find you. And it's a, it's a mutual thing. You're not using or manipulating. What you want to do is engage with people. You want them to be, you know, be friends with them. You want them to work well together with you and you with them. And, you know, that's a give and take for everybody. So you need to find the right specialties and the right people and invite them in, take them out to coffee. That was right. my plan. <laughs> it worked after a while, you know. And then, yeah. They and can go back. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't basically. be afraid to ask for help. It's okay. Nobody knows everything. Nobody. So. Um, what, I'm curious who you felt or kind of what, what type of person you felt like you meshed best with in, in your role at 3M. So if you came from the background, you came from an extremely technical science background mm -hmm. and were put in a position of product innovation, mm -hmm. um, of course, you have to work with a large variety of people, but is there a certain type that you said, like, like you said, one of your peers, like this is a person that I clicked with and we did a lot of great stuff right. with. It's funny you say that. I, I may be a little bit of an outlier and I'll explain in a sec, but I think as a product innovator, you're sort of in the middle. You're in between the customer, which is to say the marketing and sales force, those people and the tech service people are going to service a customer. And then the guys at the other end who are making the thing, the manufacturing engineers for the most part. Now, I, I, I'm a, a little bit of an outlier because I was actually, before I went into chemistry, I spent a couple of fruitless years being an English major. So, you know, I loved writing and reading and I thought, and I, you know, felt creative. However, being in science, you actually have the opportunity to be so creative, you can't believe it. It's it's so different. It's, it's different than I thought. It's not just rote. It's all creativity. Anyway, I sat in the middle of these as a fulcrum point. So the engineers I worked with really well because they understood and were able to translate what the vision and the, the innovation and the idea was. And they were able to implement it far better, execute it far better than I could. They were much more disciplined and rigorous. And that was what made them happy. And I was so grateful to understand that. And on the other hand, I was able to talk, um, I don't know, more uh, 
informally or creatively, less dogmatically to the marketing people to interpret what it is we have. Why is this different? Why is there value? Why would people want to buy this? That was a question. You know, where's right. the money? Some of the emotional appeal too. Exactly, sure. exactly. What are you trying oh, protecting your surface or protecting your job? Whatever it is. And so, you know, if you can do that and translate between the two realms, you know, that's they call that the gap. And you bridge the gap and you go from pure science and engineering to the marketplace. And most product ideas, 90%, 95% die somewhere along their development. Only about 5% become successful. And it's because they fall off. Either either some percentage are just bad ideas and don't work. But a lot of them are pretty good, but they fall into the gap and they never get out. They can't translate to the other side. Right. It's a skill you can develop. It. You're not born <laughs> with it. I'm here to tell you. And I, I think that's a great point because a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the people I've spoken to in the sciences or engineering almost take pride in the absolute lack of maybe that, I don't want to, maybe that, I don't even want to say creative, but possibly the emotional side of it, or the fact that you can, you can utilize having a narrative to kind of inspire your creativity in the sciences. Sure. Um, a less kind way to say that is sometimes they're robotic, right? I think it's a control thing. Yeah, I yeah. think, and I think, I, it, I understand people. This is an insecure world we live in. You know, if you can measure something, if you can describe it exactly, you have a measure of control over it. Right. You know, we even try to do that with each other and give ourselves thumbnail sketches of, oh, this guy's an introvert type Z personality, and people are not that simple. Right. Right. And you know, control. You, you really don't have as much control as you'd like to have. And I think, especially in the sciences, it's it like you're saying, you gain control if the concept is. It's rigid, and here's the rules you follow to, mm-hmm. to do things. One of the best things I ever did uh, in my life, I think, for for my, my self-esteem or my ego was partway through grad school to just realize, like, I, you know what? A lot of people are way smarter at this than I am. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, it's really cool to work with them, mm-hmm. um, and I get to learn stuff. And then that pressure goes away of, like, oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing mm-hmm. it wrong? Uh, but on the flip side as well, you need to um, – kind of temper some of that creativity sometimes and, mm-hmm. and apply it towards a practical Well, nature. you can't be sloppy, especially if you're trying to make something. Uh, and, and the game gets even more intense if you get into a healthcare area. You know, you can't mess around with that sort of thing. Right. So that requires rigor. Uh, however, I'd still say the original spark comes from some other creative piece in you, you know, and, and you try to get that out is, I guess, maybe the word I'm looking for is salesmanship. Right. You've got to be a little bit of an entrepreneur. To get that idea, you know, excited and out there and getting other people buy into it. Right. I will touch upon it later on. I don't want to get too off track, but I but it, we will touch upon the concept of uh, uh, narrative and salesmanship, etc. Um, so my background is optics. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we first met, one thing that we talked about was thin films. Man, there's obviously application from my my perspective of, again, thin films and coatings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a ton of optical considerations in the thin films that you work with, mm-hmm. be them adhesives or mm-hmm. what have you. So can you tell us some of those considerations? Um, they run from the, uh, it's a good question, they run from the sort of the more simple-minded things like clarity, color, and, and the like, all the way to specific optical effects. So... Um, I'll go to the optical side first, actually, because one of the really fun things to think about is when you think about some of the the thin film optical materials that are out there, um, 
and 3M, they had a long history. They actually found their start in the realm of overhead projectors, which was a technology that was invented by 3M in an adaptation of the Fresnel lens, which is a precisely ground lens. So, you know, you're refracting light. You're messing with the direction of light. Um, and that was on the shelf. We sold a product like that for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, then along came the ability to more precisely control film manufacturing. Some of this is proprietary and I really can't go into it. But in a broad sense, um, it's the old spoon in the glass of water trick. You know, it bends. And why it bends is because you got a different refractive index. So if you can layer up materials that have differing refractive indices, you can now manipulate light on a smaller, smaller scale. And, you know, because light is in a nanometer um, size scale, that means you need to have films along that same realm. Right. And the secret of how you get there is, of course, the proprietary part. But you can imagine doing this with a, you know, extrusion filmmaking processes. I was on the periphery of that. I was the main um, leader developer of, a, of a, a technology that kind of touched on that and spoke to that. It's called simultaneous film orientation technology. We can talk about that separately. But back to the thin film side, you can start to see now that you have now material choice because each material has a unique refractive index. How are they layered together? How are they processed together? How do you make them perfect? You know, there's not a lot of room for defects when you're talking about nanometers. And, uh, and, and how do you make it cost effective so that you can, you know, you can get your iPhone for only $1,199 right, know, rather right. than $15,000. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, imagine that you have a roll of uh, packaging tape, and you're gonna you're gonna go into you know Walmart or Target or something, and you're gonna you're gonna move from your house to another house, or you know tape up boxes. There's a emotional appeal of having a roll of tape on a shelf that looks crystal clear, and there's printing on the cord, and you can see it. Believe it or not, that's really difficult to achieve on a high speed, high volume operation. There's just a lot of ways for defects to get in things in a factory that's not sealed, um, including at one point um, we were making film in Kentucky and then South Carolina, and uh, mayflies got in one night. And you have a six to eight meter wide roll called a mill roll based on paper technology, and you're winding up you know, 10,000 meters on this thing, and then they, they uh, go to unwind it and convert it down to smaller sizes for further operations. And what happened was those mayflies would glue one layer to another. And so it was the most maddening three or four days after that. Because you didn't know it at the time. They're right. little. Right. So that's what I figure out. So what. a clean environment is, is not, you know, maybe in a, in a high-end, you know, electronics business. But most of the world doesn't operate that way. Right. And I, I mean, there's so just just from the concept of, you know, at the most basic level, you have to have equal thickness across it. Otherwise, it'll look really funky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need it to be, you know, precision right. nanometers. It's like, if it's a little bit off, you'll see it with your bare eye. Right. If there's air gaps, you'll see it. Um, one of my favorite things to to point out, I think probably at this point, much to the chagrin of my girlfriend, is when you get interference in these thin films. Mm-hmm. Just because it's thin and you're working right. with light and you'll get interference. Um so you mentioned that one of the things that you focused on uh, was this novel process mm-hmm. dealing with material. Um, can you speak a little bit about what, uh, how that impacted optics or yes. how optics was involved with that? Yeah, Unfortunately, we're going to have to take a little bit of a side trip first 
to the background of film. So I'm, I'm going to say that there are uh, basically four ways to make a film. So the first way is you dissolve a material, plastic, polymer in a solvent, and you cast it out as a as a, a thin bed or a lake, and, and it, the solvent evaporates, and you're left with the film. That's how things like the original um, uh, cellulose acetate films, things like that, which are typical backings and cellulosics, cellophane, if you're familiar with it, that's how they were originally made. Uh, the next step up from that is to have a material that's, that's meltable, melt processable. And so these things are actually typically crystalline, like a polyethylene. Um, you heat it up and you can melt it and you can extrude it, which is to say it gets passed through a barrel with a rotating screw, pushed out through a thin die that looks like a coat hanger into a thin sheet. And, um, and you can control the thickness of that by flexible die lip technology and all this other crap. But, you know, that's called melt extrusion and that's a cast film. Then you can get clever and you can take a thicker version of that and you can grip it and these clips and run it through another oven, a secondary process called a stretching oven or a tenter oven, based on the old medieval English way of making cloth or fulling or tentering cloth, where you would have these tenter hooks, which they would also use deviously for the Inquisition, but we won't go there. <laughs> and you could you you set cloth that way so it doesn't wrinkle and shrink so much. And that's why they did that. Um, a very similar kind of process. You can stretch this cast film, let it recrystallize. Remember, I said these were, think about ice. You can melt it and reform ice again, you know, and you can go, and so can these, you know, many, many times. And they tend to remember the last thing you did to them. That's called memory. And so you can set them in a way that you want them to. Now we start to get to the optical effects because now uh, crystalline segments within a sheet are starting to become down to the size of optical wavelengths. And now you can see that's where clarity comes from. If the crystals are too big or oriented in the wrong way, they interfere with light like you just said, and it looks cloudy or smoky or even iridescent. Nobody likes that. Um, the last way that I'll talk about is called blown film, and that's how all your trash bags and things like that are made. And that's pretty high volume and uh, and pretty fast, cheap process. Essentially, you take another, you know, you melt the polymer again, you extrude it through a ring uh, type of a die, um, and you have air in the central cavity, and it blows it up and out. And so now you're making a big, huge balloon, and at the other end of these towers, which can be 20 or 30 meters tall, I'm not talking small game here, they get picked up by two rollers that smoosh them back together into a long sheet, and then they get slit down and used in different purposes. So that's the primer on how films are made. Right. I'm going to talk about this, the third most operation. That is to say the, the tentering operation, if you remember the tenter hooks. So uh, I alluded to the structure of the, of the crystals. If you have a crystal material, it looks like it's a, uh, like a white pellet when you start out with it because that's the crystals scattering light. Um, you melt them down, it becomes clear, but it'll crystallize right back up. But if you stretch and hold them in the right way, during the reformation process, you can control the direction that the crystals are oriented. And so now you've got optical axes. And now you start to see, oh, now this is how I control the film. Uh, if you want to talk about a purely polarizing film, you want all those optical axes to be in the same direction, completely parallel, so that light coming, you know, at, at perpendicular to that is completely blocked and light going through, you know, you know how polarization works. So how do you do that in a continuous process? There's various ways to do that in, in different kinds of stretching operations. The one I uh, worked on developing, and, and we built the first one such in the world working with a, a German machine manufacturer named Bruckner. Um, 
it was called a linear motor technology. It's it's so cool, but uh, you could you could take these materials and you can now orient them and give it a bias in whichever direction you wanted. Imagine that you're looking down the web or the direction that the web is being made or the film is being made. We call that down web. You can have the crystals orient that way, or you can have them oriented mostly the other direction, and it impacts the not just the optical properties, but it strongly impacts the physical properties and mechanical properties. It could be stronger or weaker in a given direction. And now, because we had a simultaneous process that we could control, you could make that main orientation axis whatever you wanted or make it completely balanced. And so that, uh, you people can't see me, but um, that's where my hair went. <laughs> you know, that was a lot of sleepless nights trying to get that thing to work. Right. So, and it was a large-scale operation, so... Huh. Yeah. And I, I think just on the clarity issue, uh, one thing that even people who aren't in the optics realm can probably sympathize with or, or have seen is if you're looking at diamonds, if a diamond has, if a diamond's extremely pure, it's just carbon and it was formed with the crystals uh, being very uniform, then it'll be highly transparent. And when you have impurities, either things get into it during that formation process or the crystal formation isn't uh, totally uniform, it'll be less less pure, less transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the color might change if it's quote-unquote doped or if something else got into it, etc. Um, so like you're saying, not only is it important to make sure that you have a very pure material, but the structure of that material at the microscopic or nanoscopic scale really uh, that crystalline structure is extremely important to how it behaves, mm-hmm. both optically and mechanically. Absolutely, um, that's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's. I have a lot of fun trying to think up how to explain optic stuff in not optic terms. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, things that people are familiar with, and yeah, it's it's true. That's a good one. Right. Um, that being said, I will be sure to put a link up to polarization, op- optical polarization and uh, how polarizers broadly work, which I, I think is kind of a, exactly what's happening to some extent. Right. Um, so how can you talk a little bit about, you know, we, we've talked about it's important to be sure that it's repeatable and precise, but how do you know? Well, you know, you have, uh, that's the whole realm of metrology, and that's where the Six Sigma thing comes in. Um, there is has come to be uh, manufacturers who produce um, metrology equipment that are used in plant situations. The Perhaps the most robust and commonly used one is something called a beta gauge. I think they use a cobalt source. And so you're looking at attenuation uh, of radiation and, and it's, a, it's a quick pickup, a quick detector on the other side. So in real time, you get a readout of the cross uh, width thickness variation. Hmm. So... You can tie that into a, a sort of a feedback um, system with the, I, I mentioned things going through a die. A die is nothing more than a long slot through which the molten material is fed. But it's a little more complex than that because at the edge of the die are what are called die lips. And these lips are sort of independent segments of very flexible and thermoresponsive materials. And so you can individually... Uh, change those even mechanically. Sometimes there are thermal bolts that are used that'll make them expand and contract a little bit for fine control. Uh, different systems do different things, but the beta gauge is going through scanning back and forth. So it rides on this carriage back and forth across the film thickness. 
the detector, you know, follows underneath. Uh, that feeds directly into the control system, which then feeds the lips and tells them where to go and what to do. And after it settles down for a while and you throw a bunch of stuff away, finally it will kind of get into a resonance situation where you will have the profile you want. Hmm. So we look for particular profiles and, and try to control it to within, you know, very narrow parameters. Right. Bas- it's But... It's a key component is performing the metrology to be sure that what you right. are trying to make is being made. Right. 24-7. Correct. 24-7. You also have, uh, you know, QC laboratories that are usually affiliated right off plant site, right off the floor. And you'll go in and make more specific measurements on representative pieces of the material. You know, and it's uh, very important in the optical game. Those are usually clean rooms and you pull it into and you're looking at, you know, all sorts of different, different things. Right. Um, so we also got a few questions from, from listeners. Um, one of those is their, their application is extremely technical. Uh, they're very curious about when they have to send things into space, mm-hmm. does that affect the entire adhesion process? So if I'm in a vacuum, is that going to impact not only how the adhesive is working, and of course, I'm sure this has to do with the adhesive. Mm-hmm. But also, I think a key component is like, how strong can we make these adhesives? Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, they actually tried to do some early work on a space shuttle at different universities uh, to, to look at you know strength of adhesive joints. The idea being, can you make first the... I have to backtrack now and talk about the formation of an adhesive bond. So an adhesive bond is bringing two surfaces together that will attach, and they can attach by physical or topological ways, or they can attach by chemical ways. And so mostly they have a combination. So in uh, let's just say that there's a couple of uh, different kinds of adhesives, and they, they all operate under the basic principle of the first step is wetting, and then the second one is bond formation. So if you cannot cover a surface, if you cannot wet out a surface, and it'll spread the adhesive over the surface, it, can, it can't bond to it. Now, in space, that will be affected dramatically. Imagine a two-part epoxy that you're going to glue two pieces together with. It's not going to spread the same across a surface in microgravity or zeogravity as it would on Earth. And so it's, it's sort of an interesting problem from that standpoint, what really happens. Um, the adhesive that most of us, besides like epoxies and things like that that we're most used to are things like adhesive tapes. Those are called pressure-sensitive adhesives. And they are permanently tacky, but they never form a permanent bond necessarily. They can in certain circumstances, but for the most part, it's like scotch tape. And so they have the same thing happening, but on a shorter time scale. So you imagine the the layer of uh, adhesive polymer being laid across the surface. It has to wet that surface. Again, that can be affected by microgravity. Uh, I'm not sure in which direction, but it's a great question to ask. The bond itself, once formed, is now just a mechanical structure. So it should have the same tensile and compression properties as on the Earth's surface, given um, the absence of you know any gravitational effects, which on a thin layer may not even be. They they may be there, but you might have to go out to eight digits to measure it. Right. It's so small it doesn't. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't affect it. Yeah, but that wetting and then bond formation are really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone else was asking that. If they have materials with different uh, coefficients of thermal expansion, <clears throat> is there a golden rule for, I guess, what type of adhesive you want to use? But I think 
Uh, I see what they're. I see where they're going. Yeah, if you have a structural adhesive of one kind coupled with a structural adhesive of another kind, and they have different thermal expansivities, yeah, you're going to have a problem. Mostly, that stress will resolve at the interface. So, for the most part, um, you're going to have rearrangement. Even the most rigid polymers move on some time scale. You know, if you think of something like polycarbonate, it's you know it's hard and it seems like it's going to last forever. But there's a classic experiment started in the 1960s. Somebody shot a high-speed rifle bolt into a block of polycarbonate, and they've been measuring it ever since. Huh. And it forms and dumps a ton of energy in that initial event into the system. How does the system resolve the energy? Well, polycarbonate has, for you non-chemists, it has a long chain with which is pretty rigid with rings, styrene rings or six-membered carbon rings attached to it along the length that lock together. These rings will rotate very slowly over time, and they're, they have the energy built up into them, and they've been rotating ever so much, and that drives the formation of these little micro-cracks. So you track it by seeing these cracks. Oh, <laughs> cool. Right? It's very cool. It's a very cool thought experiment, and the guy did it for real because he was that kind of yeah, yeah, kind of guy, some professor at University of Virginia. Uh, Virginia Tech, rather. Um, but anyway, uh, to answer the exact question, if you have different thermal expansion coefficients, you're going to stress the material. And stress is usually resolved um, at the interface. It's simply the one with the most surface area exposed. And so, you know, nature tries to drive things to, to lower surface energy. And if you if you have a bunch of stuff dumping in, it's going to go against that, and you're going to have some problems. Usual form, it could form a micro cavity, it could form just a micro crack, which then turns into other bad things. But basically, it's you're going to have a problem. You have to think carefully about it. You you could have a problem, and you do have to think carefully right. about it. Yeah. And there's no easy answer. And there's no easy. I mean, there's measurement. There's try it. There's, right. You right. know, like the old empirical, almost in a sense. I don't know if the model, the, the the rule of thumb. I don't know if the analytical, but I think it's in there. Uh, there's a guy named Tony Kinlock, K-I-N-L-O-C-H. I believe he's still research active. It doesn't matter. He's what you're talking about is fracture mechanics, and that's a whole area of study. Hmm, okay. I'm not an expert in fracture mechanics, but I know enough about it to recommend. Right. He has several books and, and ton, hundreds of papers on the subject huh. in polymer materials. So. And we'll, we'll be sure to link to that as well when we post this. Uh, one other question that I uh, that someone asked that I think is really interesting, and then I have a few as well. Uh, what about anti-adhesion? So it's great if I want to stick this onto something, but right. at some point, I mean, you mentioned this before, uh, in some cases I want it to come off, and I want yeah. it to come off really cleanly. Right. Um, how how do we think about that? Like, how is it achieved and what do we have to consider when we're well, doing Well, I think this? It's, it's a great question, but I'll break it into two parts. The, the first part is uh, you want a surface. Let's say you, you don't want anything to stick to your surface. Well, you know, Teflon. Right. And and the variants thereof. The latest ones are, you know, ceramic nanoparticles, which, are, you know, are sort of impermeable. And it's essentially those, uh, Teflon is, is it's getting a bad name because of the perfluoroalkyl substances. That was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> the PFOS materials that are made, that are used to make them are, you know, persistent chemicals. However, it's so interesting because when they are tr- treated properly, uh, made properly, uh, a surface of Teflon is a bunch of fluorine atoms, like little, a forest of fluorine atoms and short chains that stick up like a field of perfect grass, and nothing can penetrate it. Hmm. I mean, this the surface uh, tension, the, the, the contact angles go to near zero. 
you know, it's it's remarkable. So, and you can do even more of that with uh, with uh, decorated nanoparticles too. It's a topic for a different day. Right, right. Um, so you can make surfaces that don't want to be adhered to. You know, silicon's another famous one. Right. You know, um, and you can do that mechanically as well. Like I said, with the, alluded to with the particles and carbon nanotubes, same thing. Um, if you want to get adhesives off a surface, you can. There are several ways to do it, and this is a great time for me to to plug one of the inventions that I was proud of when I worked at 3M. This is the um, the command adhesives, which you may or may not be familiar with. In dorm rooms, you either love them or hate them. They're the hooks that are stretched to remove. So you have a hook on a wall, you have a little, a little foam, sticky stuff. Um, well, I was instrumental in getting that thing going and writing the, the initial patents on that, which was a lot of fun, um, but harrowing. And, and what to get a material to debond cleanly was the game there. And we did it by applying force in a non-traditional manner instead of applying it normal or perpendicular to the surface, which damages the surface or leaves stuff behind. We formed what's called a cleavage, a clean cleavage at the interface between the adhesive. Um, there's a lot of technology that goes or technical stuff that goes in the development of that. But basically, we, we imposed a, a cleanly separating crack at the interface by stretching. Huh. And that's how that works. There's more to it than that, but that's the, the gist of it. Right. Other materials will debond because they have a thermal reversible memory. Uh, you may put something on a memory in a you know on a surface in a strained state, and it say crystallizes or undergoes a phase change, turns into a glass, um, and then when you heat it, it converts back to its random form. Because polymers, when they're you know what they like to be is a coil. It can be a random coil. It's as small as possible surface tension or surface energy they can present. So they, you know, Gibbs and the, the laws of thermodynamics are happy. Right. Um, but if you force them into something and lock them there, they will want to revert if you give them a reason to. So that's one way to do it. And, of course, there's solvent. You can, you know, everybody knows what goof-off is. Right. So right. just things like that. Um, so for myself, one of the questions that uh, – well, it's, it's less a question, more so that any time that we had to operate with vacuum systems, mm -hmm. um, or I've had students ask me, oh, I have to do a vacuum system. How do I seal it? What type of tip? You know, I want to get two things put together. I want to seal it with some adhesive or epoxy, whatever the case may be. And it's a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to, uh, to leak. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does. And I would always say, well, don't ask me because it's a, it's a headache and I'm not a vacuum expert. Mm -hmm. um, so do you have any insight on, on like what type of adhesive or, or what chemical properties are important when you're trying to get two things together and you don't, and you want to hold a vacuum? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert in vacuum either, but you know, I think about the, the, the greatest fail example was the, the space shuttle with the O-ring. A silicon elastomer and uh, these are called thermoplastic elastomers they were formed in a ring and, and they uh, something to think about for all these cases you have to think about your your service temperature range um, so a polymer if you could measure let's just call it stiffness in the material the stiffness of a polymer varies quite a lot uh, with temperature so something it's very simple to to um, to understand, let's just say PVC, polymonochloride. We can be familiar with it as a sort of a, uh, a drain pipe, right? It's very hard and rigid. As you heat that thing to about 70 degrees to 80 degrees C, 
maybe a little above, it starts to soften, undergoes what's called a glass transition. It turns from a glassy material to a rubbery material. And as you heat it further, it'll actually flow. And so um, if you had, in the space shuttle case, you had a perfectly flexible, you know, low modulus, low stiffness, that is, material that formed a great seal because it was compressed and then when the compression was released, it, it filled the gap completely. Beautiful. So you don't have gases escaping to be, you know, ignited. Um, but on that day in the launch pad in Florida, it was too cold. And, uh, and what happened to it was that it, it was under compression and it was too cold and it did not expand to refill the gap because it was below its glass transition, transition temperature. It was below its, its you know, its, its softening point. So it wasn't soft anymore. It was more rigid. And so it was easy to form gaps and for gas to, to escape. So the first thing you have to understand are the um, dynamic mechanical properties. It's called DMA or dynamic mechanical analysis of properties, which is to say compliance and loss modulus and storage modulus. Again, technical terms, but they refer to the stiffness, and it, it, you know, ability to flow and so forth as a function of the temperature regime. So a lot of materials are, you know, kind of stiff and, and hard at low temperatures and they get softer. And this is why the polymer molecules have more and more thermal energy to move around. So there, it's really dependent on the case. Uh, a lot of things like epoxies can be very brittle, but a lot of them are, are softened or they're toughened with different you know, materials like rubbers and things like that. Uh, secondary materials. There's a lot of new stuff that's come out in that regime. So. Right. A ton of, uh, I'm sure, or I'm not sure, but I can imagine a ton of material chemistry. Yep. A lot of material chemistry, even, right. you know, physical types of things you can do with, you know, coarse shell polymers that, that leak. And as a guy, a self-sealing guy, I forget, I think he was at Illinois, but he had a little encapsulated micro beads and inside were a, uh, a catalytic material and some low molecular weight stuff that would then react mm -hmm. when it found a crack, you know, right, which is right. pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, that O-ring story, I think that's the one that, uh, Richard Feynman. Yeah. That was a Feynman yeah. thing. Redunted in the, you know, he's a little bit of a showman, but yeah, right. he made the point that, uh, well, I mean, that's the salesmanship, right. Of, uh, yeah. Of science. Yeah. Right? You get the point across it. If you could do it, an image is simple thing, you know, without a diagram, even, you know, right. good for you. Right. <laughs> um, so I think that handles all the all the questions. Uh, before we move on, are there any um, last bits about adhesives or thin films that you're particularly excited about uh, in the you know coming out or in the future that people might be unaware of? Well, I, I'll I'll say two things that are really cool, and I think the one area is playing out pretty well. And that's the uh, the whole realm of optical adhesives. So you know, I talked about refractive indices and things like that. Uh, we're getting into more and more visual components in the world, and and those and they're usually formed of many layers adhered together, sandwiched together. Well, how are they put together? Well, you pretty much need optical adhesives. Now, the interesting thing of those are that they have to um, match, say, the refractive index characteristics. They also have to simultaneously, I think, in many cases, avoid leak from the side, because one of the things that we all want in our our phones is you know great battery life. Well, you can't be pumping a lot of money or a lot of uh, power into the display. So you want to keep your light marshaled and channeled and all that sort of thing. So that's kind of interesting. But I think really the more impactful thing going forward is the emerging realm of bioadhesives. It's been around for a while. Um, you know, super glue seals a cut really well. Well, we all know that. 
Uh, but there is more and more internal adhesives that are being developed. And, uh, you know, you can imagine a, a sort of a, a laparoscopic type of surgery where it's non-invasive and you can seal up, you know, arteries, vessels, or what have you, you know, and have something that's precisely controlled and easy to manipulate. And, you know, I mean, you're working in the most difficult systems possible, you know, internal, in vivo. So I think that kind of stuff is interesting. Um, I'll, I'll leave a, another a problem for some bright young light out there. And this is the problem that's existed for 7,500 to 10,000 years. And that's the problem of uh, adhesion of marine critters to human structures, the bottom of boats and things like that. Barnacles. Barnacles. <laughs> it's without using toxic materials like organotin compounds or cyanides or things like that. How do you keep those suckers off? You know, it, 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 can you use structure? Can you use some nanotech, some surface? Can you use chemistry? You know, that talk about anti-adhesion. That's where you would want anti-adhesion. I not, did not know this, but if you have a tanker and you're shipping stuff from China, containers from China to, say, the port of Los Angeles, um, you can lose 20 to 30 or more percent of your fuel efficiency just because of drag. Wow. I know. It's just amazing. Huh. You know, it's just it's just an amazing thing. Conversely, on another totally related but different thing, uh, there is a, a sailboat, the Stars and Stripes, and one of the, what's the cup, the America's Cup, that was one, I think, Ted Turner's group. But what my former company, 3M, had done with that was they clad this boat, the hull, in a, a microperforated rubber membrane. And they pumped air out of it. And what it did was it created a layer, a very controlled layer of turbulence right next to the hull, which actually reduced drag. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you think of water's like right, sticking. Right, Because water has a an little bit, characteristic. A little bit, yeah, right. it has a surface tension. You broke that up. And it and they outlawed it after that. <laughs> of course. Of right. course. It's a good idea, though. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure in a lot of like flight-based scenarios, yeah. that's an important consideration. Sure, shark skin is what's usually used to disrupt the surface right. layer. You right. know? And it's less active, it's, it's cheaper, and it's more durable. So, huh. you know. But yeah, I think most, like if you think about the, the stealth airplanes, right. you know, their surfaces are pretty highly textured, I imagine. Right, it's, yeah, there's a lot going into it. Um, yeah, those are cool thoughts. I, I that's pretty astonishing about the drag of ships, but it makes perfect sense. It's it's incredible. You know, they used to bring the old time ship, the Polynesians. They go to the bottom. They get so many barnacles. They just they get bottom heavy and just go under the wave. Oh wow! They had a low prow, and so down you go. Huh. Um, well, so that I think kind of summarizes the uh, the topic of um, of adhesives and 3M. Your work at 3M. Um, Actually, before we do move on, there is one last question I have, which is, do you have any recommendations for people who are about to leave uh, college and join the workforce? Uh, are there any key tips, in your opinion, for when you get into the workforce? Um, you hit on one early. It's just the ability to have maximum teamwork. You know, you need to work with teams and to get the job done. You need to be what industry is sorely lacking is fresh ideas. You need to have have new ideas and have an entrepreneurial spirit, but an ability to work well with others and share. You know, and and it's it may not pay off in the immediate short term. Somebody might steal some of your ideas, but if you stay persistent and positive, 
um, you know, you'll be successful. Right. And everybody, every manager I've ever met wants somebody they don't have to worry about. So practice not complaining and just getting the work done and being a, you know, kind of lead and inspire yourself and others. It's just really about, you know, this is your one shot in the world. Make something good out of it. Don't complain that somebody else is holding you back. Right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, so now we enter into the final part of the podcast. This is, as I've said, uh, on the last person I interviewed, that was Dr. Chris Ford. This is a new thing that I uh, blatantly ripped off from another podcast uh, called Tyler, Conversations with Tyler. Um, but it's called Overrated or Underrated. And uh, if you're up for it, I'll just throw out some topics and you'll Let's see. Do it. Yeah. Uh, so first off, um, very broad question, uh, science fiction, reading science fiction, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have a background in, uh, in literature. I know. I know. Does, who wants to, who was ever inspired by a stuffy shirt tale about the rise and fall of a revolution? You know, maybe they are, but I think far more people have dreamt of going to Mars or beyond based on science fiction and created some of the things that we take for granted. So I say underrated. Is there any particular uh, science fiction author that you would recommend? Uh, I have read so many. Right now I've read a lot of John Scalzi lately. Uh, he's just creative and, and really you know off the wall with some of his stuff. I loved Old Man's War. And I've been reading this Long Earth series, which is just kind of fun play on multiverses. So um, those are there's a couple ones I've been reading. When I was a kid, I read a lot of Classics. I read a ton of Isaac Asimov and you know Ray Bradbury and things right. like that. Foundation is still the book that I give to anyone if oh. if the, if they say I've never read science fiction. I say okay, just read Foundation. It's yeah. a it's a short read and it's so fun. It's so and it just drags you in. Right, right. It's just, I love the creation of an alternate world you can jump into and escape. It's a great thing. Um, have you ever read Kim Stanley Robinson? Yes. Overrated or underrated? That's. Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say, I would say the first one was was properly rated, but the rest of them I think are overrated. Okay. Yeah. I I had a very hard time with uh, KSR because he's so technically detailed, uh-huh. and it really pulled me out of the stories. It's a pedantic um, approach; it just pounds you over the head. Right. And yeah, it's yeah. I, I I'm with you on that one. Um. So, overrated or underrated reading uh, famous English literature? Well, I say overrated. I think it's just great stuff, great writing. It, to my taste, it's it's just it's dull and it doesn't propel me. Yeah, a lot of a lot of English uh, high school English teachers, I think, might have if they listened to this, uh, just gasped probably. <laughs> Uh, it didn't stop me in my personal development. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about Shakespeare? Do you... Well, you know, no one can read the original Shakespeare except scholars, right? right? <laughs> and, you know, following the twists and turns of the plot is entertaining enough. But um, oh, I hate to say this, but I think overrated. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great stuff and it's the foundation of all these stories. But, you know, I just, it's it's again, maybe I'm just too old for it this point so reading it perhaps overrated then uh what about some of the modern reinterpretations so some of these movies like that kenneth Branagh's movies yeah right mm-hmm. right that was good because it kind of puts you more in context I, i'm thinking about one with anthony hopkins's uh, i don't know if he's king lear i can't remember but i watched some of that 
And it was really actually kind of interesting because a lot of the language was retained. But by seeing something modernized so you could get the context better, now right. you could understand it better. And I think that's been lacking. Right. You know, as opposed to the idea of subtitles. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm torn on, on the whole thing. I want to like it more than I do. I never, ever think about picking up a Shakespeare uh, play. I hate to say it, but I never think about it. Right. I've <clears throat> I spent some time uh, recently uh, reading through them, and it, it's like you said, it's, it's just pulling teeth to me personally. Um, but I will say, I will, I will give a personal recommendation, which is to watch the movie Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa, which is, I think, based on King Lear. Uh, and it's just a fantastic film. Um, it's a, I'll have to watch that one. It's a fun way to experience uh, cool. uh, Shakespeare. Um, so you also play the guitar. Um, and my, here's, a, here's a maybe an easy one, but uh, this might not be the realm that you play, but Jimi Hendrix, overrated or underrated? Oh, I think he was... I think he was uh, if he was very popular, so hard to say the word underrated, but I say underrated. For a guy who only lived 27 years to accomplish something that has lasted this long and been so cutting edge, and it still sounds fresh. Right. So I think I think he's a man. Yeah. I His recordings, phenomenal. I'm not as much of a fan of his live stuff. Uh, but when he got in the studio... He yeah. just was wildly creative. And you'd love to have seen a guy like that with modern technology. Then maybe his live <laughs> stuff would have been, you know, right, the production. Right. It's like watching a movie from the 60s and one from, you know, last year. The production values are, you know, through the roof. Right. Um, modern rock music, which I think can more accurately almost be described as modern pop. Yeah. But. Yeah. My wife listens to modern pop and you know, it's I get it. It's it's catchy enough, but I think I, I think I, I started to opt out after the Talking Heads. I thought, nah, it's not going to get any more than this, <laughs> you know. And I, you know, so I miss I miss entire movements. I miss entire you know grunge and you know. And I I, I never did smell the Teen Spirit. And uh, <laughs> and there's been an awful lot of, of of good stuff that comes out. So it's just so much now. And there's and. Some of the stuff is, is even a lot more creative than I thought it would be and catchy. But, um, you know, I I hate to say this, but I find myself listening less to music as I get older. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more to other things because I just have a lot of curiosity. And I just like to, you know, I like to learn stuff. And right, so right. It passes the time when I'm driving. Um, so from what you said earlier, you, you really like blues and roots mm-hmm. uh, music. Um I, Helen with Mur- Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar? Mm-hmm. Overrated or underrated? That's a good question. See, I start with Robert Johnson, and I'll get to your answer pretty soon. And um, and some of the some of the greats um, from the old Delta Blues tradition. And then there's a guy. Uh, um, what the hell is his name? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of uh, <laughs> of this guy's I got him in my he was, he was blind like a lot of these guys he was a Piedmont uh, finger style guitar player um, his name Reverend and I for the life of me I'm, I'm slipping on the name but he was such an influential guitar player a, hmm. a finger style player and he just 
you know, he, he just knocks your socks off. Um, I really like that guy. So, uh, Howl Wolf is comes from that tradition. Uh, I think, for my take, he's underrated. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because you listen to a lot of the earlier blues music, mm-hmm. and it's not uh, necessarily wildly complex, but at least personally speaking, it's so emotive. And you listen to it, and you're immediately like, yes, there's yeah. there's rhythm. I can yeah. get into it. Yeah. I, it really makes me feel something, whereas... Like you're saying, a lot of modern pop music, it's very catchy, uh, and there might be more going on per se, but it just it doesn't yeah. stick with you. Yeah, there's a there's a gritty grittiness to the to the old stuff. It's Reverend Gary Davis Jr. By the way, oh, okay, <clears throat> he was influential in teaching you know generations of guitar players, and uh, his style, his finger style was it sounds simple on the surface, but Always a complex, hmm. and his chord shapes and and his progressions were just you know it's it's hard with the modern ear to hear it because he did most of his re, you know they record they finally caught up to him like in the 1960s you know like a lot of these guys right. he had been doing something else or you know whatever and and he, they pulled him into the studio you know and and uh, like Lightning and Sam Hopkins these guys are you know they forgotten and then right. they rediscovered right when but they were like. They were like eight years old, you know, kind of like a presidential candidate. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's very accurate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I think the youngest the youngest candidate now is in his 70s or... Uh, 73. Yeah, yeah. that's good. No, that's, that's just what we need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, on, with respect to the idea of, you know, you, you have this rich history of being a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have two kind of parallel questions the first one you play guitar so uh music do you personally personally doing or making music overrated or underrated underrated you know making music is the occasions when i am able to do it i'm not very proficient as i said um a couple of times i played in like coffee shops and stuff with another pal it was it was just just so much fun and just so in you know it's an in the moment experience and it's hard to duplicate any other way because your your mind is engaged you're you're into it and then something about playing with other people makes it just yeah. it's like a freedom there yeah and that connection a deeper connection that you can get hardly ever you know it's uh, I love it that there's almost nothing that's made me more nervous than playing live music for people, um, obviously for people, uh, perhaps maybe right before track meets, I would get nervous, but playing live music, it really gets you feeling like, oh man, I don't want to mess up. Right. Uh, and overcoming that and getting into it and being in it. I mean, it, it brings in the team aspect, right? Right. If you're playing with someone, are you guys collaborating? Well, are you playing off of each right. other? Well, are you gauging the audience? Right. Um, and it's personally speaking, it's had a huge impact on, me talking about science to the public when I was presenting research because you get a better appreciation of okay what's the rhythm of my talk how are people oh, yeah, responding yeah, and, yeah. yeah the music of my talk if you right, will right. yeah there's a composition here <laughs> right right yeah, um, yeah. That's, so that's good that's a good point though. that's great to hear though I hope that more of our listeners will try out music it's surprisingly cost effective yes I mean you can spend a lot of money on things like guitars but. You don't have to, and you can have a lot of fun with them. And, right. And there's so much stuff on YouTube 
that'll teach you step by step. There's so much stuff. Right. It's just ridiculous. Um, and then following on to that, uh, volunteering. Mm. So I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a fairly recent emigrate to the Tucson area. And, uh, you know, you got to stay active. And so I have retired from my, my corporate job, but I want to do other things. And uh, one of the things is I've been volunteering with um, an outfit called Archaeology Southwest. Now, this area is ridiculously rich in archaeological history. And um, there are collections that have been, you know, collected you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago that have yet been curated. So it's been, a, I've always, you know, I don't know, Indiana Jones, probably before that, but, you know, I've always been interested in things that uh, humans have done and made over the years. And when I work with these objects and artifacts, I feel a real deep sense of connection to the people. It's almost as if they're living again. They get another shot and, uh, and they're brought into the daylight. And, you know, this is it's important work and it needs to be done. And, you know, there's no money in archaeology. And so... It really thrives on the efforts of donors and on people who can volunteer some of their time to help to, to sort through this stuff. And I happen to be able to bring a, a good measurement perspective to it, too. So, you know, I help a little bit there as well. Yeah. How precise do you have to measure these things? Well, you know, what you're trying to do, some of these artifacts are due to be returned uh, to the to the um, Native American tribes and uh you know, so what you what they've graciously allowed is to to have a lot of these artifacts documented, and so what you want to do is to make as precise a measurement as you can, um, and you you know a lot of these are not not to be photographed, so you need to you know be descriptive. Uh, the measurements we make, I would say the accuracy is no more than plus or minus a tenth of a millimeter, um, maybe just a tenth, maybe just one or plus or minus one millimeter. Um, but you, you measure just basic external dimensions and, you know, these are, uh, some art objects, fetishes, you know, uh, bowls and things like that. And you describe them. So right, right. it's, it's a little exhaustive, but each one has a character and you're really touching the kind of the work of the person, the craftsman who made this or craftswoman who made this. Right. And we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about the fact that being in the Southwest, um, I'm most familiar with the Tucson area, but... Uh, you can easily get out and do hikes where you see um, artifacts or, or yeah, petroglyphs. Things. You know, there's a lot of petroglyphs in this area. Right. Yeah. There's cave dwellings that you can get to pretty mm-hmm. near here. So, um, so yeah. With that, I don't think that uh, that I have any other questions. Do you have any last thoughts? Uh, well, I just uh, for the, the anybody listening to this who's in graduate school, you just keep your head down and keep working and finish. <laughs> <laughs> but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Right. It and, will eventually end. And one of the things I will suggest also is to talk, you know, find somebody in your field, hopefully in a local company, if that's the route you're going. If you're going to an academia, talk to a professor and ask them, take them out to lunch or coffee and say, you know, what's your job like? What's it like? Because some of the unknowns and the things that cause us fear can be dispelled with a simple conversation. So I always say, ask people hmm. who are already doing it, you know. Right. What do you like about it and that sort of thing? Well, with that, thank you for uh, for sitting down and talking. Thank you for having me, Logan. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spotlight Report. 
As always, we invite you to go to our website, community.eleoptics.com, where you can communicate and discuss this episode of the podcast and find all other episodes of the podcast, as well as other useful information. Thanks. Have a great day.